This is The Bindercast, a conversation series featuring our favorite women and gender non-conforming writers. And I'm Katie Shepard, not the usual host of this show, but the host of another new podcast called What's Happening Here, a show all about pivotal moments in people's lives. And the whole thing I'm interested in is major change, being with people as they're going through a huge event in their life. But in this instance, I went to BinderCon. That's right. We just had BinderCon 2016 in New York City. I came to BinderCon to connect with other writers and to get information about publishing. So I'm a part of the Binder community on Facebook and a couple iterations of it, especially the Binders for People of Color and through talking with the other binders they were like you know being a part of this conference will give you access to agents and editors and people who are passionate in supporting these kind of works. Well someone asked me to be on a panel and I said yes. It's a panel um, where editors talk about what we do. I wanted to go and meet other writers and just I guess trade experiences because I'm still at the learning stage and I think that this is a relaxed and easy way to meet people. And while I was there, I got the chance to meet Stephanie Land, whose forthcoming memoir is titled Made, A Single Mother's Journey from Cleaning House to Finding Home. Since Stephanie was there, she was asked to sort of open the whole conference and began by telling her story. Hello. Uh, I wrote this out before coffee this morning, so forgive me if it's a little choppy. Uh, thank you so much to the BinderCon organizers for giving me this chance to speak in front of all of you. Um, so on Thursday, I woke up in New York for the first time. By the time I met Lee Stein for a drink late that night, I excitedly told her about my day, which included walking around a rainy Times Square, buying teddy bears for my two little girls back home, and looking up, fully understanding the term urban jungle. As an introvert, I was pretty sure I'd sort of hate it here. I thought I'd scamper from place to place, a scared little dormouse from Montana. But I found myself falling in love with this city. Last night, Lee introduced me as a binder success story to her friends and family. And it's kind of true. When I became a binder almost two years ago, I worked from home with an infant in my lap, doing whatever I could find, as long as it meant two things that I could do it when my daughter nursed herself to sleep and I got paid for writing words. We were on food stamps. I had a crushing amount of credit card and student loan debt. And though I didn't know it then, every decision I made first had to pass through a fog of panic, stress, doubt, and hopelessness. In July of 2015, a piece I'd submitted by chance to Vox Media's call for first-person essays went viral. It caught me completely off guard. It'd been this essay I'd worked on for a few years called Confessions of the Housekeeper, about the years I'd worked as a maid. But that morning, in the midst of watching thousands of hits, my sleepy little website received an hour, an agent contacted me and asked if I, by any chance, had a book in the works. I said, well, of course I do. Let me send you a few chapters. (laughs) Then I proceeded to write them. (laughs) But I also continued to teach myself how to pitch through the documents in the full-time freelancer binder. I read through past posts and threads 
learning how to brand myself, find a niche, pitch editors, and request higher pay. My house cleaning essay showed me that by sharing my story as a domestic worker struggling to care for my family, I could be a voice for a population unable to raise theirs. Through binder contacts, I started working as a writing fellow through the Center for Community Change for Social and Economic Justice. I pinged Melissa Chadburn, asking her about an article that she wrote through the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. I sent a pitch and even though I spelled the editor's name wrong, got an acceptance for a story about the stigma of being on food stamps. As publications grew, I could afford childcare. I could afford to get off government assistance. All through this time, I toiled away at perfecting my book proposal with my agent. I continued to grow my, plat grow my platform, knowing I'd need a good one to launch a book from. And right as we were ready to send out my proposal to publishers, I received an acceptance email for my third piece through the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, and it was from the opinion editor of the New York Times. About a week later, I accepted an offer from Hachette Books. I had a book deal. So when I made plans to come to New York for BinderCon, I made time to meet with my agent at Folio Literary Management, and then I met with my editor, Hishan Trotman, at Hachette, and sat with a whole team of people who are bursting with excitement to publish my book. That afternoon, before I met Lee to learn I'd be speaking in front of all of you wonderful people today, <laughs> I sat down with my editor to one of the fanciest lunches I had ever known. All of the work I'd done, the decades of journaling, the stubborn determination to put my liberal arts degree to work, it had come to that moment over a grilled shrimp salad sitting across from an editor who'd bring my book to fruition. And I have binders to thank for that. Without the empowerment and knowledge I learned and grew as a writer in, I'm confident I wouldn't be here today. Thank you to all of you for your commitment to helping writers like me. And thank you to Lee Stein for her unending enthusiasm and mentorship. I convinced Lee to come to my my town in Montana for our book festival last month. And I had the honor of introducing her before the gala reading where she read a chapter of her new book, Land of Enchantment. And it's an even greater honor to have to be here this morning and to bring her up on stage. Please welcome my friend, Lee Stein. After the opening session, I met up with Stephanie and we talked a little bit about everything that was ahead for her and sort of behind her as well and what it was like maneuvering this new space. She started out by telling me all about her book. It takes place at a time that I um, lived in this tiny little studio with my daughter and uh, worked full-time as a house cleaner and then went to school full-time as well, um, taking classes online. And I thought that the houses that I was cleaning was what I was working towards. Um, and as I got to know the people through cleaning their house every other week, I learned that my daughter and I just having what we had in this tiny little small space, you know, with very little money, we were able to enjoy each other very simply. And so it not only like disenchanted my view of this like shiny big house on a hill that I thought that like once I have that, I'll be happy. 
I learned that we were just as happy as, as everybody else. When I left the anonymity of the cleaning company and started meeting my clients face to face so that they would hire me, it really changed my job. I really felt like a maid in the cleaning company because it was, they didn't know who I was. Um, I hardly ever saw my clients, but then like once I started working for people and they were able to say like, thank you so much for all of the work that you're doing for me. I started to appreciate my position more. Was there some uh, like a discomfort with being a maid because there's a certain connotation around what that means, even socioeconomically or the way that you're viewed as like a power dynamic that's in place when you're the maid? Um, I felt like there was. I mean, there's nothing good about having to um, kneel in front of a stranger's toilet and clean not only like inside, but like reach around behind it. And I mean, that was such a um, degrading thing, but it was also, it taught me so much about humility and how to be humble and, you know, to still be thankful for this work because at that time it was, you know, right after the recession and it was the only job I could really find. And I needed that job to survive. So, you know, even though it was, hard to get down on your hands and knees, like, especially if the client was home and, you know, asking you to do stuff and saying like, oh, you missed a spot. I still had to be grateful that I had the paycheck. Was that complicated for you that you're spending your days essentially like furthering how you'll function in the world? Because education has a lot to do with access. And then there's this stark difference of being on your knees, cleaning a toilet? I'm not sure. I, there, towards the end, I, most of my classes were in person. Like I had to go to school. I didn't have the option to take classes online in my like junior and senior year. But I, what I remember most about doing that was that I was an adverse student and I was older. You know, I was well into my thirties. In my senior year, I was pregnant, <laughs> like really, really pregnant, <laughs> um, going to these classes and walking down the hall. So I don't know, the, the classes and like getting my education, it gave me confidence that I would not have to do this anymore. Like I, I wouldn't have to clean houses for a living. Like, and I, I had to hold myself accountable to that after I graduated because it would have been easy for me to go back to cleaning houses. But I had to tell myself like, no, I have this degree now. I'm going to use it. Like I'm not going to do that job anymore. And um, luckily it worked. (laughs) I'm guessing not more, I mean, not one time, but several times you were like, fuck it, this is too much. Like I have children or a child at this point and I am in college and I'm cleaning and I'm self-sustaining and like the self-sustaining well is running dry. Uh, Was there, was that ever in your mindset at all? Or was it just clear trajectory to the outcome? There were days that I was so thankful that I worked alone because I cried so much. I mean, it's, um, it's a thankless job. My life was incredibly isolating because I worked alone. I went to school online. I was a single mom. So it wasn't like I was going out ever and I didn't have money to anyways, you know, I wasn't talking to my family and 
I always called it like whenever a new wave of problems would arise and they always did like a car breaking down or my kid was sick and I couldn't work. And so the paycheck was going to be like 60 bucks less, which meant, you know, we possibly couldn't pay rent, couldn't pay heat. Um, you just, I always called it like ducking down and barreling through. And that was what I had to do. And I, I had to rely on my own strength and have faith that it was there, but also have faith that I would one day be here, (laughs) you know, that I would, this was just a phase that we were going through and that we would get through it. So. Incredible. So where does writing come into that? Is writing sort of what was the goal? Like that, that was where you saw moving through and moving towards? Uh, Not originally. Um, I was a single mom. So I, it's like, well, I need to get like a nine to five office job so I can get, you know, steady paycheck, 401k, whatever that is. And, um, you know, health insurance. And so I originally started thinking I was going to be a paralegal, but I wanted to do it in a way that you can't really do it. I wanted to be like a freelance paralegal, just like helping women um, escaping from domestic violence situations to go through the court process. And so after I learned that I couldn't really do that as paralegal, you have to be a lawyer, work under the umbrella of a lawyer. I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll just go to law school. And um, one night I wrote this little tiny blurb and it made it into a local magazine. And I was sitting there staring at my first publication and I decided to switch to an English major and take writing seriously. Um, luckily it worked. <laughs> I mean, at the time I was like on track to be like a domestic violence advocate and things like that. But I thought that I could reach more women in a more meaningful way through writing. What are you wanting to, to reach and advocate? Um, well, I think my story is powerful in that I, I don't like calling myself this, but, um, you know, as a domestic violence victim and survivor, that was a huge, deep pit that I had to crawl out of emotionally and, you know, find my confidence again, um, find just myself and learn how to go about my day without always listening to the negative talk of, you know, like his words are still in my head when I do the dishes. I mean, it's because he was so critical about how I cleaned things. And, and I have heard from a lot of women who, you know, I think because like I'm, doing it on my own and, you know, with all the things that I have to deal with, um, they, they say, well, if you can do it, then I can too. And I feel like I've been inspirational with that. Uh, I'm still uncomfortable with people calling me an inspiration, but, um, I think that's the most important thing. How does BinderCon play into your story? Um, I'm here because I'm just like, a huge fan of Lee Steins. So, uh, and I just wanted to meet these women that I've connected with. Um, my favorite binder is, it's this huge long name. It's uh, Binders Recovering from Relationships with Narcissists, Sociopaths, and People with Personality Disorders. I think there's like 200 of us in, in there, but they are like my close knit group. And we don't really talk about like where to pitch essays or ask for any help with that. It is like, you know, 
my abuser just presented me with a new court document and I have all these deadlines going on. And it's just all of these insecurities that I've had for years and years, I realized were stemming from what I experienced with abuse. And I'm, I'm just such a, I'm just such a fan of what binders do for people. And I give them a nod as a, a thank you for, you know, my career, basically. I mean, it's, I wouldn't be writing full-time without the contacts that I made through those groups. Where, where does it come from for you? Because there is this feeling specifically when you have been abused or you also have had extremely difficult circumstances piled on top of extremely difficult circumstances. And it feels like you're sort of hoarding difficulty because there's like an understanding of pain as like the way to exist. Um, and is just like how things work and where does, where do you think it comes from in you, maybe from your children, maybe from some inner self to just, there's a resiliency there that, because there's so much self-talk and there's so much, like sometimes it feels like you're holding your brain so tight to just like placebo new thoughts in, in there that say like, this is not how it's going to be for me, even though everything says it should go this way. I want to go this way. So where, where do you think that comes from specifically with this project for you? And which is largely reflective of how you've chosen to live your life. Wow. Um, well, I mean, first, I, I, I lost the ability to cry uh, over the last couple of years, especially. I, there was so much going on and so many, like, overwhelmed feelings and moments that I just wanted to collapse and fall apart. And I don't remember who said it, but um, a woman writer said, you must not allow yourself the chance to fall apart. And... I agreed with that because I felt like if I did that, then I would get used to it. And that would be like my coping mechanism. And so what I did was I just, I focused on the person that I would be five years later. And I kind of prayed to her sometimes like uh, Liz Gilbert does it in her book, uh, eat, pray, love. And so when things were at their darkest and really, really dark, sometimes I would envision myself five or 10 years later, you know, a professional writer, you know, doing exactly what I was going to do. My girls were, of course, like the best behaved little humans in the world, like wearing little fancy dresses and stuff. So I just, I had, I had to conjure this image. Um, and it's weird to say that I was looking at who I am now. That stuff's always going to be there. Like it's not something that just washes off that whole time in your life and that experience and even when you get to, which is going to be a great book launch and it's going to be finished and it's going to be in the world with your name on the spine. But how will you sort of reconcile that happened and that existed and not everything now is not like rainbows and butterflies and unicorns, but a, a sort of a human because this, there's this idea of like a hero that overcomes all this stuff and that isn't to at all discredit everything that you've dealt with in any way, but also sort of like living after that happens, after you come up for air, what happens then? Well, um, I'm hoping the book gives me an even bigger platform to uh, speak about the stigma of being a single mother and especially being a single mother in poverty 
or, you know, a single mother who is a woman of color, or there's so many assumptions made about us that, especially if we're on food stamps or accepting any type of government assistance, that people assume we're lazy or that we don't want to work or, you know, that we spend all of our food money on candy or, you know, there's, there's so many memes and just um, assumptions. People are very against welfare because they think it's a free ticket. And so for the last year through my freelancing work, I've been a huge advocate of pointing out how messed up legislation is. I mean, they're, they're making these laws that prevent people on food stamps from buying lobster. I mean, people on food stamps don't buy lobster. <laughs> we buy food because we're hungry. And, but there's this assumption that because we get this free food money that we're going to go out and like fund a party full of steaks or something. So I'm hoping that the book will just allow me to advocate even more for that. And using the privilege that I have and the platform that I have been trying to build to, you know, be a voice for even more marginalized populations. So how do we reconcile that in literature specifically? Because so many things to do with the writing world, especially like high, like highbrow writing, have to do with access. Well, the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, that's what they're trying to do is they take artists, writers, videographers, photographers, anything having to do with media. So they take them in, they accept their pitches, and then they pay them a dollar a word for people in poverty to have projects like that, where they're able to submit work and have their voices heard and work with really experienced editors who are mentors. And then another thing that I do is I work for the Center for Community Change as a writing fellow. And they currently have I think six writing fellows and they're all over the United States. And I think that's so important because I felt incredibly indulgent getting an art degree as a single mother. I mean, I, I think that's why I was so stubbornly trying to make a living off of it. Cause I'm just like, I am going to make this work. And because every time the car broke down, every time, you know, my kid had something go wrong or, you know, I had this moment of just like, I am spending so much money on an art degree. And I felt like I couldn't do it because of my class, because of all of the hoops I had to jump over. You know, I felt like I should be on a fast track at a tech college to go get a job as an administrative assistant or something like that. Like that was what my life afforded me to fight through those um, economic barriers. So what's the future like for Stephanie Land and your book and everything? Um, well, I, I think the book is going to occupy the next few years pretty heavily, but I mean, I'm, I'm not going to stop freelancing. I'm still a part-time fellow at the center for community change. I'm still very addicted to pitching and getting that email that says like, yes, we would love to publish this. Let us pay you for, (laughs) um, I don't know. I'm already thinking about the next book. So I don't want to walk away from this 10 years later and think of this as just like some crazy thing that happened to me. I'm hoping that this is just the beginning of a long career of advocating for people in poverty. And I also advocate for people with a disease called chronic fatigue syndrome. 
and freelancing and writing and possibly book writing too. <laughs> so, I don't want to do anything but this. I, I'm, I'm living out my wildest dreams right now. And I want to keep doing that because it's pretty cool. <laughs> so. If you'd like to find out more about Stephanie's memoir or any of the other work that she's up to, you can follow her on Twitter at Stepville. The Binder Cast is a production of Out of the Binders, Inc., a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to advancing the careers of women and gender nonconforming writers. Follow us on Twitter at The Binder Cast. For more information about Out of the Binders, go to BinderCon.com or follow us at BinderCon on Twitter. This episode was hosted by me, Katie Shepard. And if you'd like to find out more about the show that I usually host, you can head to whatshappeninghere.audio. Special thanks to producer Chris for helping with this episode. The theme music for this show is Ready to Go by Miss Eves and Quiche. <laughs>